Hello and welcome back to Tani Talks Radio, brought to you by Sheer Enjoyment Radio, powered by Radio.co. This is the Sheer and oftentimes the radio, depending on the week, where we talk a topic for the week or some topics for the week for the audience members to keep. Of course, tomorrow night is Yom Kippur, is Yom Kippur, and we have in mind to talk about one of the major, major stories that we read about, that we lean about on Yom Kippur itself, Yonah and the Whale. We will talk about that in a minute. Of course, you can listen to us on many different platforms on SheerEnjoyment.com, as well as this show live on Monday nights at 8.30, Sheer Enjoyment Radio, which is on different platforms on the Apple App Store, as well as the Google Play Store. You could also hear us on Sheer Enjoyment Radio on the channel on Naki Radio. You could hear us afterwards on the Tani Talks Podcast channel. You could also hear us at JRoot Radio, the app, and you could also listen in on the website to be able to hear us on that platform as well. We are also on the ability to be listened to at 520-453-8302, 520-453-8302. You could also email us at sheerenjoymentradio at gmail.com, sheerenjoymentradio at gmail.com if you want to talk to us. And God willing, everyone will be written, inscribed, and sealed for the Book of Life. God willing, when we come to Yom Kippur and for many years to come. And when we come to Yom Kippur, we talk about the story, we read about the story of Yonah. Yonah was a, a prophet, and he was given a message to talk to the people of Nineveh, not a Jewish town, not a Jewish population, not a Jewish society. And the problem that he had, as the commentators talk about and we'll look at, is that he wanted to give the he wanted to give the message to the non-Jewish people to tell them about repentance because they didn't have good ways. And, of course, we learned the idea of tshuva, and we talk about how everyone can come back from their ways. And he didn't want to go to them because what if they would do tshuva and the Jewish people were not doing tshuva, so it didn't look good for the Jewish people. So he ran away from the mission, if you will, trying to find a different place to go. And many people talk about what that means to run away. Obviously, he knew that Hashem was everywhere. And that's basically the gist of the cover of the of the story. And obviously, he's swallowed by the dog. Not literally a fish could be a whale, could be a different creature. And obviously, he's in there for a few days, which have, in and of itself is a huge miracle. And then he spit out, and eventually goes back and continues and completes his plan. the The mission that Hashem sent him it literally was five words that he says, and we'll look at those five words in a minute. But when we look at the story itself, and we're going to highlight different parts of the Prakim throughout the story of Yonah to talk about the idea, what was he fleeing from? What was he trying to, what was he trying to, to run away from? What was he trying to do by running from the task at hand? And how often do we ourselves run away and try to flee from whatever the task at hand is? We try to jump ship, if you will, from whatever the the main purpose of whatever we're supposed to do in life is. And was he fleeing a destiny? And are we fleeing our destinies? So when Yonah is given the message, when Yonah is told to go to Nineveh, and he doesn't go to Nineveh, what happens? There's a huge storm at sea. And the sources say that the storm was only concentrated on the ship that Yonah was on. Some commentators explain he actually paid for passage on the entire ship for the entire ship, for all the people, apparently. The family had a lot of wealth, had a lot of money, but there was no storm elsewhere. It's like those uh, those perfect storm movies where you see that there's only a storm in that area of the sea and everywhere else is calm. So obviously the people on the ship, the people on the, on the boat realized something was up. Why is only our ship targeted? What happened that our ship, and they draw the straws, whoever's the smallest straw, 
is going to be the one involved and they throw everything overboard. It doesn't help. And, and Jonas, Jonas straw comes up the smallest and he says, it's because of me. I'm an every, and he owns up to the fact that he is a Jewish person and it's Hashem sending the message. So even there and at the time he was sleeping unconscious when all this was raging and they come to wake him up. So he knew all this was going on. And once they throw him overboard and they, it didn't seem that they were so eager to throw him overboard, contrary to popular belief. What happens is Hashem in Parag Bed, Pasuk Aleph Tibet talks about how he provided a huge fish, a dug gadol, whatever that may be. It could be a whale. It could be a shark. Who knows what it was, but he provided a huge fish to swallow Yonam. Yonah remained in the fish's belly for three days and three nights. If you know anything about science or anything about practical matters, a person, a normal person, can't last even an hour in such a space. There's no air to breathe. There's no ability to, to remain. There's no physical way that a person could have survived. They would have been dead right away. But obviously Hashem let him survive and let him stay alive. And he lived there, so to speak, for three days and three nights. Hashem prayed Excuse me, Yonah prayed to Hashem from the belly of the fish. So first he's he's fleeing, he's fleeing from Hashem, and Hashem puts him in this situation. So where is he running, and where is he running to? He comes into the fish, and he's in there, and from the fish he has an awakening, sort of a, a spiritual awakening to see, oh, maybe I really need to be involved in this, sto- in this story, in this situation, I really need to be fulfilling what I need to be fulfilling. As he was involved in praying from the fish, he was awakened to the fact that, yes, I need to, to fulfill my task. I need to go about the task. And the, and when he was given the prophecy, what did the prophecy say? What did Hashem want him to do? Way back in Perak Aleph, in Pasuk Aleph, right in the beginning, Hashem's word comes to Yonah, son of Amitai. Interesting also throughout Tanakh, how this, the, the characters, the famous characters are identified them, son of this, son of that, no last names. That's a more recent thing in history. You think about all, many people, and even the sages in the Talmud, through Talmudic history and the Tanaim and the Amoratim, they go through the names, they don't have these last names. They are identified by their parents, identified by the family they come from. Yonah ben Amitai. Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim a judgment upon it, for their wickedness has come before me, Hashem says. Yonah, however, started out to flee to Tarshish, which was like the complete opposite direction, very far away, trying to flee from Hashem's service. Why is he fleeing? Where is he going? You can't escape God's dominion. You can't escape God's judgment. You can't escape God's message. You could pretend to go anywhere, and that's a message for us. You could pretend to go anywhere. You could pretend to flee anywhere. You could pretend to to go to an ashram or to go to a, a, a random jungle in India, and you could go far, far east, China, and all over the world, but you can't flee your destiny. You can't flee from Hashem's message. Yonah obviously knew that, but Yonah... The commentators and some people point out, obviously he knew that, but he'd rather 
run away from the task at hand than to fulfill it, because what if the Ninvites, I guess we could call them, would do tshuva, and then the Bnei who weren't doing tshuva, all these prophecies, all of these predictions from throughout all of the Yeshaya, Yemi, Yecheskel, and uh, Treaser, all of these times, even throughout the Shoftim, the, the Bnei Yisrael weren't always up to par, they weren't always doing so great, and they were like doing predictions, if you don't listen to the word of Hashem, this will happen, and this will happen, and they weren't doing their part to always come to fruition, to do their tshuva, and if he went to Nineveh and they did their tshuva, it would have looked very bad for the Jewish people, and that was his main problem. So he's fleeing, he's running from his destiny, this major message he's supposed to give to the Ninevites, and he doesn't want to do it. He flees from Hashem and goes all the way to Tarshish. A lot of times, many people in life flee also from whatever is happening in their own life. A lot of people are at a loss or at a crossroads or having an existential crisis, especially many people, if they complete army service or they complete high school before they go to college, before they continue, they don't know where to find themselves. They don't know what they should be doing. And people flee from whatever is before them in life. They they go all over the world trying to find whatever it is they're looking for. And sometimes it's right under their noses. Sometimes it's right before them. People that don't always grow up with the benefit of the beauty of Yiddishkeit and they're trying to find where to fit in, where to belong, they're fleeing from whatever they see and sometimes it's right in front of them. They might try a hundred religions, a hundred different types of things until they finally come all the way back. I happen to love reading these stories of Bali Chuva on Aish. Aish.com has beautiful, beautiful stories where they talk about very interesting upbringings. This one coming from Texas, growing up as a, as a Christian and this one coming from uh, North Carolina, growing up as this and that and in the end of the day when they come they could have easily been a Noachai. They could have done the seven Sheva Mitzvah spinning Noah but embracing Judaism, they too were fleeing from whatever they had at hand, trying to find what the destiny was. And oftentimes, throughout the year, we're running here, we're running there, fleeing from this, fleeing from that, trying not to to accomplish what we're supposed to accomplish. And if Hashem gives us and grants us and, and blesses us with another year, another year, we ask for another year, more years, up to 120 years, how could we flee from that? During a Tshuva, as we stand on the cusp of Yom Kippur, we come before Hashem, we beg for forgiveness and repentance from all the things we did wrong against Hashem. And we ask for another year. Are we fleeing from our destiny? Do we only touch base every so often with what Hashem wants or us? Ah, on Shabbos and on Yom Tov, I'll, I'll come to what we're supposed to do. Or every day, do we try to grab hold of what we're supposed to do? We're not supposed to flee from the destiny. We're supposed to grab the destiny by the hand. And the question could be, how do we know our destiny? How do we know what we're supposed to do? And I like to say that there's a beautiful article on Aish that I've seen over the years, many times over the years. I believe it was written by Sarah Riegler. And, and she asks two main questions. And this is a way to grab hold of your destiny. The two main questions would be, if you had millions of billions of dollars and you had all the time in the world, what would you do? is one of the questions. If you had hours in the day and you had the money, you didn't have to work, you didn't have to worry about things, the kids are at school, and you have a time to focus, what would you do? What would you want to do? The second question is, name the most pleasurable thing, the most wonderful thing that happened throughout your life. And we're not talking about having the best gumball machine or having the best ice cream sundae. Real, real 
existences and real situations, real pleasurable moments that you felt the most fulfilled, combine those two things and you could find your direction in life. If a person, we talk about this often throughout the years, throughout the year, throughout the shows, if a person loves to work with trains and loves to be involved with trains, but he's sitting as an actuary for Wells Fargo, he's missing the point. He could be missing his destiny and fleeing from his destiny, fleeing from what he's supposed to be doing in his life. If a person always had an affinity for working with animals, for treating animals, but for some reason they're teaching math in the middle of a college classroom and they're not feeling it, they're missing the point, they're missing their destiny. The best experience they had was interacting with that dog and helping that dog and moving about. The best experience this other person had was was writing a book, writing a foreword, writing an afterword, an epilogue. But for now, for some reason, they're bagging groceries in the middle of ShopRite. They're missing what they could be doing. If we flee from our destinies, we flee from what we could be doing, we too are running away from the message that Hashem sends us. We're running away from what Hashem gives us. Every single person has a very special set of talents. Every single person has a very special capability of what they could contribute to the world, what they could give to the world, what they could bring to the world. A person who is able to use the talent, utilize the talent, and bring that to the world is able to grab hold of the destiny. My question, my answer to those questions for years has been, if I could do anything in the world, it would be to be on the radio full-time. It would be to be able to give radio, do radio full-time as the full-time job. When I'm able to do the podcast and the and the girly, who always is very vibrant, as the, and the girly participates and lets the podcast go through when she's co-hosting, it's really a wonderful feeling. It really is a wonderful ab- ability to be able to fulfill that which I feel is one of my destinies itself. If you had all the money in the world, you had all the time in the world, and you can remember what the most pleasurable, what the most fulfilling was. That's how we could find what that destiny is, what you're supposed to do, where you're supposed to go in this world. I was in the Yeshiva University in college, and one of the highlights of the week, even though it was using the talent for the wrong purposes, and now for years we're trying to use it for the right purposes, but to be able to be live on the radio was a highlight of the week. So to be able to do radio now through Tani Talks Radio, thanks to Sheer Enjoyment Radio and Radio.co, is a highlight of the week. Might be difficult, might be hard, might be very, very cumbersome to finagle and to fit it in but it's something that we're able to do and able to try to follow through so we look at yonah and the story comes literally on the on the pinnacle of yom kippur after going through half of the day we're almost at the last three hours the last two and a half hours of the fast very difficult fast i always wonder myself would we be more fulfilled on yom kippur if we actually could eat i always wonder would we daven better would we be more focused? Would we be more in destiny with finding what the day should bring to us if we could eat? But then, of course, it goes against the idea that we're supposed to be in like malachim. We're supposed to be super natural. We're supposed to be above nature, superhuman. We're not supposed to be involved in many things. We're not supposed to wash. We can't eat. We can't drink. Even washing the hands has to be done to the knuckles. You can't wear regular shoes. We're supposed to be extra uh, above the ordinary, extraordinary as the malachim. And we're, we even say the, the part of Shema that is supposed to be silent the rest of the year, we say it loud and clear like the malachim because we're supposed to be like the malachim on that day, wearing white, being involved in that. So maybe 
eating wouldn't make sense, but it would be much more possible for those of us, including myself, that fasting is very difficult for. And I like to dive in for the Yom anyway, and Yom Kippur always difficult when that's involved too. But when we look at the at the day, and the day is mostly done, we come to Yonah, and maybe Yonah's teaching us that he was fleeing a destiny, and oftentimes in life, we too are fleeing our destinies. How much time elapses before a person realizes what am I doing with myself? What am I doing with my life? They go about their day. They get up at 6 o'clock and they send off the kids and then they make it to work at 9. They punch a 9 to 5. They come home. They're exhausted. They eat. They send the kids off to sleep and then they, they fall asleep and then they just press repeat every day, every day, going the daily grind, almost like a robot, almost mechanical monotonous, going through the day, day by day. Are they fleeing their destiny? How many years has to elapse before a person says, this is crazy, I'm just going on repeat for years. What am I doing here? What is my purpose here? What am I supposed to fulfill in this world? How am I supposed to contribute to this world? We come to the holiest day of the year when we're hoping that Hashem will seal our fate to give us another year and many more years, happy, healthy, safe, prosperous, with good health, with good wealth, and with good, wonderful things the whole year. What are we going to do with that year? We should be so zocha to be granted. What are we going to do with those hours and those minutes and those qualities? Yonah reminds us he had one simple message to give to the Ninevites. He had five words we're going to look at in a minute to give to them. And he fleed from that. How often, too often, many of us in life are fleeing from our destiny, are fleeing from our purpose, are fleeing from what we're supposed to do in this life, what we're supposed to accomplish in this life. You know, the the head of Walmart was sitting on his deathbed. Very famously, this was written. I, I read this a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. He looks at his family, and with his last few breaths, he says... I blew it. The head of Walmart, the multi, multi billion, billion dollar company built from the ashes, from nothing, to being one of the most sought after online retailers, one of the biggest competitors to Amazon. You know, a huge enterprise, everyone that goes all over the country looks for the Walmart. It has everything there. But the owner, the CEO, looks at his wife and his kids and literally says, I blew it. Now, why would he say such a thing? Why would he use those last breaths on this world to say, I blew it? Those three words, he could have said anything. He could have charged them with the meaning of life, anything. He says, I blew it, because all those hours, all that time that he put in, all the effort that he put in, was all for nothing because all those hours he missed with his wife, he missed with his kids, he missed being a good dad, being a good husband in his own mind, in his own words was spent on building up an empire that doesn't come with him, doesn't come with you to the next world. Only spiritual matters, the, the Torah you learned, the mitzvahs you did, the chesed you did, the keser shem tov that you hopefully worked on the, in this world, your good name that comes with you, your reputation that you build on, which is the best keser to have. Perkevus teaches us there's a keser malchus, there's a crown of kingship, there's a keser kahuna, a crown of priesthood, and there's a, uh, a crown of, I forget the other one, Kesar Torah, the crown of Torah, of course, and the Kesar Shem Tov Ola Al Gabayim. The best crown to have is the crown of a royal good name. 
the crown of a good reputation, better than the Torah crown, better than the kingship crown, better than the priesthood crown. The crown of a good name is the best crown to have. And that takes a lot, a lot, a lot of work throughout this life to to get such a title. That's why it really irks me, really bothers me when they say, this person is a tzaddik, this person is a tzaddikus. Prove to me, tell me what they did. Tell me what did they possibly accomplish in this world that they could deserve such a beautiful title, such a beautiful superlative, such a beautiful description. Yes, you could say that this this sage, this Talmud Chacham, this Gadol Hador, yes, he was a real tzaddik, but to tell me, Charlie over there, who barely has any time for his family, barely has any time for other people, doesn't give tzedakah, but he's a tzaddik, don't use that term lightly. Make sure it's destined that that name and that title can really be used. Oh man, she's a tzaddik, oh man, he's a tzaddik. What proof what evidence do you have that such a person can deserve such a title i believe in this life we have to work hard long and hard to deserve such a title and it takes years and years of hard work working on people's midos working on people's chesed muscle and working on the tzedakah muscle working on the mitzvah muscle like there's muscle memory there's mitzvah memory and there's and there's chesed memory there's torah memory these are all things that have to be worked on you can't just say yeah, he's a tzaddik. He's she's a tzaddikus. You can't throw that out. There's no evidence. There's no proof to that. Even a great sage can flee and run away from their destiny. Oftentimes, too many of us are fleeing, running away from our destiny as well. We need to make sure to greet our destiny, to grab hold of our destiny, and to take our destiny with us, and to follow it through every day, a little bit, whatever we can, and however we can go about it to reach it. If your goal is to write a book. Start with one page every day, one blog post every day, and put it into a book. I always say that to my wife that she has these beautiful, beautiful reviews of many, many restaurants. I want to take all the blogs and all the reviews of all the years and publish it. But that would mean that we'd have to take every blog from every week and every year and put it together into a pamphlet and publish it. But it starts with each blog. It starts with each review. If you want to publish a book, and I want to work on this book, these characters, these five characters that we started out, if I want to publish that book, I have to start week by week. So the first week is done. We start on the second week. And maybe after 50 installments, I can make it into a book. But it starts with the first page. It starts with the first step. To get to that destiny, to publish that kid's book, you need the first page. You need the first line. You need the first character. You need to think it through. To publish that book that you want to write, it starts with the first paragraph. It starts with the first page. It starts with the first dollar that a person can give you for crowdsource and fund it, whatever place you can go. You want to publish that song, you got to make sure you know how to play the guitar or play the piano. Pick up the notes, make the chords, make the riff, make the lyrics. It starts with the starting point. Every way, every mission, every ability, it starts with that first step. And you have to take that first step. You can't run away from your Ninveh to your Tarshish. You can't run to the East Indias just because you're scared to confront whatever can be found in your city in Israel or in the base Medrash or in the Shul. You have to find your destiny, not flee from your destiny. The question is, though, what was this great prophecy that Yonah ran away from? He went to Yaffa, he went to the Tarshish, very, very far away, the commentators point out, literally days and days away. He pays the fare and tries to go all the way to Tarshish, away from Hashem. But what is the prophecy that eventually he finally does say that he ran away from to begin with? The prophecy was literally five words. A destiny can be five words, can be five minutes, can be whatever you could do. It could be the destiny that you 
change one person's life forever, and it just takes five words to do so. And here, Yonah's destiny in this prophecy, in this great Sefer, this great book, was literally five words. Vayachal Yonah, Perig Gimel, Pasuk Dalet, Vayachal Yonah, Lavo Ba'ir, Mehalach Yom Echad, Vayikra Vayomer, this is it. This is the key prophecy. Od arba'im yom veninve nehepechas. Literally, five words. This brings me to mind the parallelism of lahavda lahavda when Miriam gets saras. I, be, I don't know if it's in Sefer Shemos or Sefer Bamimber. I'm blanking. But when she gets saras and she has to wait seven days outside the camp, very humiliating after talking about Moshe and his wife and the family, whatever was going on, Moshe doesn't pray a 17-page long Megillah. He literally says five words as well. Kel, na, rafa, na, la. Hashem, please, please heal her right now. How could it be? Miriam talked slander, talked Lashon Hara, and Moshe says five words and she's cured. Obviously, they had to wait the, the week still. But five words also to get her cured. Sometimes it could be five words. Sometimes it could be five minutes. Sometimes it could take five years. Whatever your destiny is. You know, if you want to be a therapist, I'm an OT, I had to go to school for three years. You want to be a psychologist, you have to go to school for a PhD for five years, for PsyD is it also five years. You want to be a doctor, you got to go to med school and fellowship and internship. But if you want to be that person that has the practice and be the top doctor, the top this, the top that, you have to go and put in your time. But sometimes it could just be five minutes. You have this great idea, this great invention, you're on... YouTube for five minutes, boom, you had it done. You got your destiny. Here, it was literally five words. How long do those words take Yonah to say? Od arba yom Literally 10 seconds, 8 seconds. Yonah starts out and makes his way into the city, the distance of a day's walk. How big is the city that it's a day's walk, a very big city? He proclaims literally 40 days more and Ninveh will be overturned. 40 days more, and Nineveh will be overturned. The people of Nineveh believe in Hashem. They proclaim a fast, and great and small alike put on sackcloth. The king actually tells them to overturn their bad practices, and and they were doing like crazy, crazy things, not going to get into here, but even the animals and the people and a lot of things were involved that they had to fix. But literally five words were involved, and they believed God, and he said the, the five words the question, the problem that many commentators have is, was Ninveh actually overthrown? Because Hashem didn't overturn the city. So how could we use the word Nehepechas? How could we use the word overthrown? Keep that question in mind. Keep it in the back of your head. We're going to come back to it in a few minutes. When the king hears that that Yonah finally accepted his destiny instead of running away from his destiny, what does the king do? The news reaches the king of Nineveh, Paragimel, Pasuk Vav. He rises from his throne, takes off his robe, puts on sackcloth instead. This also, Lahavda Lahavda, reminds us, Mordechai, Yoshev Bashar Melech. When Mordechai hears, and and and. This obviously is a different story, but I, I feel these parallels. We see these parallels a lot of times. Rabbi Foreman and Aleph Beta does this a lot also. He parallels on a much, much better level. We're on much, much less level than that. But it brings to mind the imagery. Mordechai also, you know, was a, was a Yoshe Vishar Melech, his, his wife or his cousin or his daughter or his sister, depending on the commentator, is the queen. Mordechai hears the terrible news. He takes off his royal garments. He was a me- member of the Sanhedrin, the Anshe Knesset who reinstated the davening. 
and did wonderful, wonderful things, many different decrees and gazeros. Mordechai is a regal figure, is a, is a shofet, is really a, a, a prophet and, and really a great sage. He takes off his robe and puts on sackcloth, and he goes involved and gets the whole city to be involved in in proclaiming a fast, and obviously becomes one of the heroes of the story. But here, Lahavda, 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 this king of Nineveh takes off his robe and puts on sackcloth as well, which is interesting to see that back in the day, which is so not the case nowadays, the respect that different kings, non-Jewish kings, had for Hashem. Very interesting to see. We also see this in the in the book of the Shoftim. I believe it was Eglon, the very, very, very large king, and I believe Ehud was the one that ultimately killed him, but when Eglon hears the, the that, I believe it's Ehud Ben-Ger that comes and says, I have a message from God himself. What does Eglon also do? And I believe his name is Eglon. He literally rises off of the throne out of respect for God. Isn't that interesting? These are kings that don't really believe in Hashem, doesn't believe in Monotheism, they're probably Avodazar worshippers, but for some reason when they hear about the king, the one god of the Hebrews, of the Jews, they stand up out of respect. Nowadays, we don't see this at all, especially in secular society, in society at large. We don't see the respect for Hashem, for monotheism in the, in the same way, in the same aspect. But very interesting, he also rises from a throne, and I believe that as a result of his standing up, Maybe maybe one of his descendants way, way, way down the line was Rus HaMa'oviyah, who ultimately becomes the ancestress of David HaMelech. Just for standing up out of respect for Hashem, ultimately he's killed by the Shofit anyway because of the usurpness and, and the, the sly-handedness of pretending he's a lefty and whatever. But here too, he he gets off of his throne for the for the honor for the the sanctification of God's name. Very interesting, even though he himself probably didn't believe in Hashem. Anyway, it's a side point. He rises from the throne, takes off his throne, puts on the sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So, Jonas says five words. The original five words he originally that was fleeing from, and he, he ultimately takes the words, gives them to the to the people, five words. Crazy, because there were so many nevuos, so many prophecies to the Jewish people, prakim upon prakim, and Yirmiyahu, and Yechaskel, and and Yeshaya, and Treyas, or throughout the years, so many prophecies that could not sway the Jewish people. This prophecy, five words, sways the whole people, and sways the king himself. Fascinating. He literally sits in ashes, puts on sackcloth, takes off his royal garments, the king himself, and he had the word cried, Throughout Nineveh, we're looking at Paragimel Psukim Vav to Tet. By decree of the king and decree of his nobles, no man or beast of flock or herd shall taste anything. They shall not graze and they shall not drink water. So we see parallels to the own, our own day of Yom Kippur. If the non-Jewish king and the non-Jewish subjects could not taste water and not drink food because they're terrified of their city being overthrown, in our lives, when our lives hang in the balance and our future for the year hangs in the balance, maybe we should look at it. How could we even think of drinking? How could we even think of eating? How could we think of tasting anything or, or dressing in garments that are much more comfortable than the suit or the non-leather shoes? How could we? We look at the people of Nineveh, Lahanville, and we should learn from them. And it's proper to learn from everyone around us, as Pirkevus teaches us in Perak Dal and Mishnah. Aleph Ezehu Chacham Ben Zoma asks, Who's wise? Who's strong? 
who is rich, who is a wise person, Ezehu Chacham Halomeid Mikol Adam, Halomeid Mikol Ha'adam. Some say also, who is wise? Someone who learns from everyone and everything. You look at the at the book of Yonah, and you're like, why are we reading this on Yom Kippur? Why are we coming to this story? He's not even talking to Jewish people. He's talking to non-Jewish people, and he runs from the message of Hashem. Is that really a good thing for us to read? On Mincha, at the end of Yom Kippur, Yes, it is, because we're supposed to learn from everyone and everything. We're supposed to see from the Ninevites that they had these five message, these five words of a message. And look what they did. Look how they were spurned to do tshuva from five words, not even ten seconds. Halavai, we should be spurned to do tshuva. And we should be spurned to do better also, not to eat and not to drink just like them. They shall be covered in sackcloth, man and beast, and they shall cry mightily to God. We should be spurned and we should be inspired. To also be involved in tshuva, true tshuva, as we come to the story on Yom Kippur. And we should also learn how Yonah thought he could flee or wanted to or tried to flee from his destiny, from his mission, from his nevuah that he's giving to the people around him. How could we think that we could flee from the judgment of Hashem? You can never flee from the judgment of Hashem. It's always out there. Spirit also teaches that all of our deeds are written in a book. It's us ear that hears everything, it's eyes that see everything. It's the it's the we can't use any physical character traits, but it's the ever seeing eye, the ever hearing ear, and it's the ever writing book that Hashem has open in front of him. We can't flee from the destiny, from the judgment. We know he's righteous and we know it's true. You know he's the real Dayan and we know he's involved in only justice and truth. And we see that Yonah tries to flee. We see we're fleeing the whole year from our destinies, from our missions, from our purpose oftentimes. But we can't flee. Just like Yonah can't flee, Hashem will find him anywhere. And that's what happens. Hashem finds an agent, sends an agent, we'll look at it in a minute, he sends an agent, a huge fish, to swallow him up because he can't run from Hashem. You can't run from the judgment. You can't run from your mission. You can't run from your purpose. If you don't get your purpose done, God forbid, you might have to come back and do it over again. This whole idea of uh, the Gilgal, the whole idea of, of coming back in another life, which we're not going to get into. It's way over my head. But there is an aspect, there is an idea on some level how a person has to fulfill their mission. And if they don't fulfill the mission before their time is up, they might have to come back in a different form, in a different way, in a different place, you know, different... Neshamot might have been in different people, but you know it's like the idea of Eliyahu and Pinchas. It, some say that they were the same kind of character. Some people say it was the same person, but both people were very kina, were very righteous for Hashem. Eliyahu, one of my favorite characters in all of Tanakh, one of my favorite Nevi'im throughout Tanakh, Eliyahu was very, very righteous for Hashem, very righteously zealous for Hashem, but he was to an extent that was too much. At the end of his reign, at the end of his time, after Eliyahu single-handedly defeats in a huge showdown the, the fake Nevi'im of the Baal, the fake Nevi'im of the Asherah on Har Carmel, proclaiming a test, not told to him by do, to do by anyone. It was a very risky move. Major, major, major kudos to Eliyahu for taking upon this test, which no one told him to do. He single-handedly takes down all the Nevi'im of the Baal, all the Nevi'im of the, of the Asherah. He's the biggest adversary against Ahav and Izevel, who are very, very, very wicked people in their own right. You know, they stole the, the field from Naval, which might have been his cousin, and and executed a lot, a lot of Naviyam. Ovadia tried to hide them, who also was a contemporary of Eliyahu. Eliyahu has this whole showdown against the Naviyam, and he comes 
for 40 days he's told to to walk and to run on the on the strength of like one fig cake one one meal and he comes to this place and Hashem shows him a vision and Hashem tells him what are you doing here? What is your purpose? And I'm paraphrasing. And Elio says, I was very righteously zealous for Hashem's sake. Your people, your Jewish people, your children are not listening. I alone am the only prophet truly standing in the public sphere fighting for your honor. And Hashem shows him a vision again, a loud sound and and great visions. And then there's a very small, still voice. And Hashem says, and a small, still sound rather. And Hashem says, I'm not in these loud Things. I'm not in the thunder. I'm not in the fire. I'm in the very small, still sound. And what I'm telling you is that your zealousness is not what's needed right now. You have to go appoint Elisha and appoint Yehu or whoever the king was at the time, and then your time is done. So Eliyahu was a wonderful, wonderful figure, but the righteousness, the zealousness might have been too much. So they... They connect him with uh, with Pinchas, and he comes back throughout history, throughout the Talmud, at different points to try to make up for that and to come to see that the the Jewish people. We had a whole lecture, a whole shear about this a couple of years ago. Fascinating stuff. Eliyahu comes to every bris, to every seder dafka because Hashem tells him, "See, you were too overly righteous. You said my children are not listening. Look at all these brises that they're doing. Look at all these seders that they're doing. Look at all this wonderful Jewishness that's here. See, you got to come back and see it." Pinchas was also very, very zealous. He single-handedly took care of Cosby and uh, the other person when they were not going about the right business in front of Moshe, in front of all the people, and the halacha was forgotten so that Pinchas could righteous, rightfully get his place as a coin in his own right. But a lot of times people fulfill their destinies, but to a different extent, to a different aspect, and to a different ways. So they had to come back in different ways and different ways. So these are different things that we could think about, different things we could learn, especially from anyone around us, especially when we come and we sit down and we listen to this story, fascinating story, and we see about the Kikayon and the special plant that Hashem makes, and then He destroys it, and He teaches Yonah, you had a compassion on a Kikayon, on a tree, and a worm that destroys the tree. How can I not have compassion on the Jewish people? It's also fascinating at the end of Yonah, we don't see an end point. We don't see an epilogue. What happens to Yonah? Where does he go from there? How do we know what goes about there? Some people say he was actually the son of that Shunammite woman that actually, you know, always hosted Elisha every time he, he traveled through. And that was the boy that had the headache and then passed away and was revived. Some people say that was Yonah himself. But in any case, neither here nor there. Yonah himself is a fascinating story, and he comes to Nineveh, he gives the prophecy in the end, and the king and the nobles actually do the tshuva, which inspires us to do tshuva. If the non-Jewish people could hear five words and be inspired, how could we not try to be inspired and try to repent in our own lives, in our own ways? Let everyone turn back from their evil ways, from injustice of which he is guilty. Who knows but that Hashem, who may turn and relent, he may turn back from his wrath so that we do not perish. But earlier in the story, when Yonah is fleeing, when he is trying to run from his destiny, look at all the things Hashem sends to him. Hashem himself sends a mighty wind upon the sea. Sometimes in our life, we see it very clearly. Hashem is sending a message, whether for good or for bad. Why would that person be in my path today of all days out of the random person? I never, I haven't seen him for 10 years. I haven't seen him in 15 years. It must be a message. Why is it that there's a mighty wind only on our ship, Yonah? 
might be thinking, the people of the ship might be thinking, why is there a sea raging around only our ship? Why is there a huge storm raging only around our ship? Why is that happening? How could it be happening to us that the ship is being in danger of breaking up in Paragalif Pasigdalin. In their fright, the sailors cried out each to his own god. They flung the ship's cargo overboard to make it lighter. Yona himself had gone down into the hold into the bowels of the ship all the way at the bottom where he lay down and fell asleep. How does he fall asleep at a time like this? I never understood that. The captain went over to him and cried out, How can you be sleeping so soundly? Up! Call upon your God. Perhaps your God will be kind to us and we will not perish. So we see that throughout the story, we're going back and forth. We see Yonah tries to flee and then Yonah ultimately fulfills the purpose. And we see the Ninevites do the tshuva, which inspires us to do the tshuva. But at the end of the story, flipping to the back of the story, all the way in Perak Pusik Dalin. Hashem makes it. It's a very, very hot day. It's brutally hot and, and Yonah is probably feeling very faint and very weak. Hashem makes it that this this plant, this tree, sprouts up overnight, sprouts up right away and gives him the shade that he desperately needs from the brutal heat, from the brutal sun. Hashem then makes it that a worm or a creature eats the tree, breaks the tree down, and then Yonah is suffering again in the heat, in the brutal weather, the brutal heat. And Yonah gets very sad, very upset about the loss of the plant. Hashem tells him and talks to him, are you that deeply grieved? Are you that, that deeply upset? Yonah had left the city. He found a place east of the city. He had a booth there. He sat under the shade till he could see what happened to the city. Hashem put this rickenous plant, this kikayon, which grew up over Yonah to provide shade for his head, save him from discomfort. Yonah was very happy about the plant. But when Hashem made that worm destroy the plant, he was very upset. And he was not happy with it. So we see that there's Everything in the world has its own destiny, has its own ability. They say that it would be halavai, it would be worth it, for there to be a huge palace, a beautiful palace, so that one day in 60 years from now, one great sage, one great Talmud Chacham will sit and learn Torah in its shade. It could be that this one plant was made just so that Yonah himself can have some respite, can have some relief from that tree, from that shade. Earlier in the story, in Parak Gimel Pasig Yud, we see Yonah getting upset. Yonah had ran away from his destiny because of this exact point. We talked about how he was upset, worried that the Jewish people would not be saved, would not do tshuva, and the Ninevites would be, and it would be a terrible chalal Hashem that the Jews are not repenting, but the Ninevites are. Hashem saw what they did, how they're turning back from their evil ways, the Ninvites, and Hashem renounced the punishment he had planned to bring upon them, did not carry it out. And the key words here are, this displeased Yonah greatly. He was grieved, he was upset, frustrated. He prayed to Hashem saying, Hashem, isn't this just what I said when I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish. He literally gives us the exact reason why he fled his destiny. He points it out point blank right here in the Pasuk. I fled to Tarshish far away because I knew 
I knew it was going to happen that they were actually going to be inspired to repent and look at these Jewish people not repenting. I knew beforehand you are a compassionate and gracious God. I know you're slow to anger. I know you're abounding in kindness, renouncing punishment. Please, Hashem, take my life, he says. I would rather die than live. He can't handle the terrible affront to the Jewish people that the Ninvites hear five words and renounce their ways, and the Jewish people hear countless prophecy upon prophecy, dire predictions, doom predictions, and they can't do anything about it. And they don't do anything about it. It's a terrible Chal Hashem. And he's not happy about it. When Yonah originally flees, though, he has to hear from Hashem a second time. In Parak Gimel, Pasuk Aleph, where purposely flipping around to different parts of the story, Hashem comes to Yonah the second time. Go at once. To Nineveh, enough with this fish, enough with this running away from the ship. That great city proclaimed to it what I tell you. Proclaim to it what I tell you. But the whole time when, when Yonah is fleeing from his destiny, he goes to these different spots along the way. Interesting how each part of the story shows what happened. We get such a, a deep scene and, and a, a look into the different parts of the story when he runs through the ship and the ship is in danger of being collapsed being destroyed and being ripped apart scene by scene board by board the men say to one another let us cast the lots find out on whose account this misfortune has come upon us they cast the lots of course it falls on yona they said to him what did you do what have you done who have you who are you that you brought such misfortune upon us? What is your business? Where have you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I like this phrase because as we stand and we're about to stand, God willing, before Hashem on Yom Kippur, what is your business in life? What is your destiny in life? Where have you come from? What have you done this past year? Where have you come from this past year? Was it a year that you were successful? Did you fulfill any of your destiny? What What have you to show before me? Hashem could ask us that you accomplished with your life that I gave you for the past year. What did you do with your hours, with your minutes? How much time was wasted? How much time could have been used better? Granted, we have to rest, we have to recap, we have to relax, especially with the spouse at the end of the day. And yes, we need to re-energize and recuperate, and it's good to have downtime, but that can't be the whole day. What about those waking hours, those energetic hours? I like to say from like the 8 o'clock to like 8 o'clock before the tiredness and the energy seeps away from me. What do you do during those hours? What have you brought to me as your business, Hashem can ask us, what have you done to brought any misfortune to the world? What, God forbid, have you done bad and what have you done good? Where have you come from? What are you bringing with you this year? What is your country? Have you stood up for the Jewish people? Have you stood up for Israel? Have you done anything good for your own country? And of what people are you? These are all questions they ask Yonah. But these are really questions we should ask ourselves as we stand before Hashem at Yom Kippur to justify that, yes, we need another year. There's so much more we can accomplish. There's so much more we want to accomplish. There's so much more we need to accomplish in this world and the world at large. What people are you? Have you represented the Jewish people, showing them that you're prideful in being a Jew, prideful that you are an Orthodox Jew? I could tell you there were many times this year. In one of my placements, I was surrounded by a lot of non-Jewish people asking a lot of questions about Jewish matters and Judaic matters, and I could easily say I had to represent the Jewish people many, many times this year. What people am I? Very easily to be told in that environment that I'm a proud Orthodox Jew. What is the Talmud? Uh, it's, a, it's a whole thing I had to explain. What is Yom Kippur? 
do you do you make blessings on food? Do the rabbi bless food so you could eat it? No, he does not. We have to have these special symbols and these special instruments, these special types of ovens and pots and pans for dairy and meat, and we can't eat dairy after meat. And it's very difficult to explain to non-Jewish people all the intricacies, but by and large, oftentimes, many times I have to explain it in many different settings because I work for a non-Jewish organization, I work for the city, what people are you? How often have you had to confront such a question in your own life in the past year, standing up for the Jewish people, standing up for any attacks against the Jewish people, standing up with pride for the Jewish people? Oh man, those Jews are great. We saw some great videos on Tisha B'Av, and one of the stories was very fascinating how a person comes to buy a coffee from a gas station, and the, co- and the, the attendant says, you people, I love you people. And the guy is like... You people, what do you mean, you people? He's like, I love the Jewish people. Let me tell you a story. And then I believe it was Rabbi Yoel Gold who was explaining the story or Project Inspire, explaining how many, many years before that, during the Six-Day War, the guy had an employer and the, the war broke out and he was missing a paycheck or two and he was very much yeyush. He had much hopelessness that he would get paid. And it turned out that the, the army... The, the guy who was employer was employed by the army at the time, fighting for this existence, the survival of the Jewish people, and he did tons and tons of research and found an employee in a convoy to take him exactly to that guy's house just so he could pay him that check. What a Kiddush Hashem, standing up for his people, for our people, the Jewish people, that 50 years later, when a Jewish person walks into a store in the middle of Wyoming, that person could say, ah, I love your people, I love the Jewish people. But can we come before Hashem and answer these questions that they asked Yonah so many years ago? Another parallel to ourselves, when he's trying to flee from his destiny, the destiny comes right back to him at a random ship with probably random non-Jewish people in the middle of the sea. What can you do to explain to me why did you bring this misfortune on the rest of the world. God forbid were we involved in any chal Hashem to bring misfortune and a desecration to Hashem's name to the world, God forbid. What is your business? What do you do for a living? But what is your business? More than what you do, what have you done? What have you accomplished? Not just what's your occupation, but what has your occupation done to better the world? What is your business? Where have you come from? Where are you going to? In the coming year and the year that passed, where have you come from? What have you done? What have you accomplished? What mitzvahs, what chesed, what Torah learning have you done? Have you contributed to the society and the world at large? What is your country? What can you say you did on behalf of Israel, on behalf of the Jewish people? And of what people are you? The Jewish people. Questions that obviously... We read in the story of Yonah, but we should take time to reflect and think, wow, these are really questions for us to answer in front of Hashem as we come before Hashem. And of course, Yonah ends off with Hashem telling that you cared about the plan. You did not work for, in Parak Dalat, Pasuk Yud, you didn't work for this plan. You didn't grow this plant. It appeared overnight and perished overnight. Should I not care about Ninveh, that great city in which there are a thousand, hundred and twenty thousand people who don't know their right from their left, and many beasts as well? It's kind of Nahama consolation for us, knowing that Hashem cares about each and every one of us. If Hashem can have it, that He's not going to overturn Ninveh. He needs Yonah to come first time and then a second time to give the message even though he, f- he fled from his destiny and ultimately fulfilled the destiny giving the message t- teaching them that if I care about a plant I care about the ability to have these people how much more so do I care about every Jewish person who comes before me like sheep going through the kennel being counted by Hashem 
that yes, I care about each person, and we should take pride in in ourselves and our pindalayin and our Jewish neshama that we're still around, we're still here, and we hopefully will be zolchet in many more years. That there is what to accomplish, there is what to do, there is what to do to bring fortune on the world. We could bring our business, we could come from one place and go to another place and stand for our country and stand for our people. Pirkei Rabbi Elazar points out in Yud Yud. Zion, Hashem comes and sends a great fish to Yonah. Rabbi Tarfon said that fish was specially appointed from the six days of creation to swallow Yonah. As it says, Hashem had prepared a great fish to swallow Yonah. It didn't say Hashem brought a great fish now. Hashem had already prepared the great fish to swallow Yonah. Meaning the fish was there waiting for Yonah for years and years. Yonah thinks he's fleeing his destiny, but Hashem obviously made it that the destiny was involved, that the fish would swallow him as part of the story, as part of his tshuva process. Oftentimes, many times, there are so many things in our life that are sent our way, dafka, on purpose. Man, I haven't seen that rabbi in 20 years. What is he doing here right now? Obviously, he's here to lead me on the path. I haven't seen my friend Sam for 15 years. There must be a reason. There must be a connection. Hashem sends the fish in our own lives, our own keviachal fish in our own ways to teach us and bring different messages to us to lead us along our own destiny. Yonah enters the mouth just as a man enters a great synagogue and he stood there. The two eyes of the fish were like windows of glass giving light to Yonah. Rabbi Meir said one pearl was suspended inside the belly of the fish to give illumination to Yonah. Like the sun, the sun which signs with its the sun which shines with its might at noon, try saying that five times fast, giving illumination to Yonah. Why? Because even in the bowels and the depths of one of the worst places to be on earth, there is always still illumination. Even in the depths of the Gehenim that people go through, Hashem still sends illumination. We just need to see it. We need to find it. People could go through the worst things in life. We should never know from any of those things. But there is that illumination afterwards that comes right after the terrible, terrible, terrible tragedy of the of the World War II, of the Holocaust. Right afterwards, the illumination of the the modern creation of the state of Eretz Yisrael came to us. Yonah Lahavdal is thrown in the fish, one of the worst places to be, but Hashem still gave him that illumination, gave him that pearl, gave him that life to show, the light for his life to show him, I'm still here. It's still shining. It's still illuminating. We could have terrible aspects to the, to the year, terrible falls, terrible, terrible stumbles, but do we look for that illumination? Do we still get up? And still go about our days looking for that illumination, looking for that light. Sheva Yibot Tzadik become is a major pasik for all of us to live by. Shalom HaMelech says it. And Shalom HaMelech was one of the greatest kings, one of the wisest men of all time. We look for that illumination in our life as we see that Yonah had that illumination himself. The light, the pearl, was suspended in the belly of the fish and gave illumination to Yonah like the sun which shines, even in the depths, because it says, Or Zarua Latzadik, from Tehillim, light is sown for the righteous. Even if we're not considered in our own life, in our own ways, Atzadik, we should look for that light in our own ways and find that light to lead us to our destiny. Yona answers them, It's my account that misfortune befalls you. Take me up and cast me in the sea. The sea will calm you. As it says, he said to them, Take me up and cast me in the sea. Rabbi Shimon said, The men wouldn't consent to throw Yona into the sea. What are they, pirates, bloodthirsty pirates, throwing him overboard without any words, without any care or compassion? 
They said, we can't send him over. Let's cast lots and see what happens. They cast the lot. It fell upon Yonah. What did they do? They said, no, let's try to get rid of our cargo first. Let's get rid of all our utensils which are in the ship and cast them into the sea to lighten the load for safety. It didn't do anything. They wanted to return to the dry land, but they were unable to, as it says, the nevertheless in the Pusik. They weren't callous men. Oftentimes reading the story growing up, I think, ah, this is the pirate. This is like uh, Captain Hook, Lahabdil, Lahabdil to uh, to the Peter Pan or whatever the, the other guy is. Lahabdil, Lahabdil. I always thought of them as pirates, but really, if you think about it, they tried to do what they can not to throw him overboard, not to get rid of him. The men rode hard to get them back to the land, but they could not, as it says in Parak al Gimel. What could they do? What did they do? They took Yonah and they stood him on the side of the ship, saying, God of the world, do not lay upon us innocent blood. We do not know what sort of person is this man. And he says, delivery on my count is this misfortune befallen you. So they tried to do a few things before throwing him overboard. So contrary to my belief, popular belief, they did not just throw him callously. They tried to do a few things, which also shows us that even in life, even if we have to deal with different types of people, different types of situations, try to take a few steps before going to the ultimate, ultimate end. Try to take a few steps. Try to do what you can. Like if you have a child who's not behaving in a camp or a group before, throwing him out of the group right away, go upon different steps before throwing him into the sea. They tried to throw things overboard. They tried to row. They tried to put him at the side. Then they ultimately had to let him go, but taking a few steps first. Just like Lahavdal in a destiny, instead of fleeing from a destiny, try to reach that destiny, but take it step by step. Take it page by page. Take it blog by blog. Take it paragraph by paragraph. They took him and cast him into the sea up to his knee joints. The sea storm abated. They took him up to the again to themselves, and the sea storm became agitated again against him. They cast him again up to his neck. The sea storm stopped. One more time, they lifted him in their midst, and the sea was again agitated against them until they literally put him in the sea. And it abated. So they tried a couple of ways, even trying to put him in the water, out of the water, in the water, out of the water, in the water, out of the water, until ultimately they had to let him go. But it wasn't easy for them. Obviously, you see that they were involved in different things. The Gemara points out how it says that Yonah was wealthy because it says he went to Yaffe, he found a ship going to the Tarshish, he paid his cost, went down into it. Revi Yochanan said he paid the cost of the entire ship. The cost for the entire ship was 4,000 gold dinars. He was trying to run, 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 even paid for the whole ship. Sometimes when we're fleeing, we'll even pay for the full price of something, full price of this or that, just to flee, but we have to grab that destiny. We can't flee from the destiny. Yonah points out, and Eben Ezra points out, and Yonah, Yonah remained. No one can survive in the belly of fish even for an hour. Obviously, it was a miracle for Hashem to prove to Yonah, you, know, you can't flee from your destiny. Radak points out, Yonah went to Tarshish. How could he flee? The prophet was full of wisdom and intelligence. How could he think he could run away from Hashem? He thought he could flee from before Hashem, meaning before Hashem's presence, which is in the spirit of prophecy, if he were to leave the land of Israel. The spirit of prophecy maybe won't be on him anymore. Maybe then he could refuse to go on the mission, since he thought that the non-Jews are quick to repent. And then if he goes on the mission, maybe then it won't work out. And if he goes to the mission, they would repent from the evil ways, but they didn't want to get the prophecy to begin with, to explain why he was running. Abarmanel points out on Yonah, the word of Hashem came to Yonah ben Amitai until the sailors field. Our sages say that Yonah was from the tribe of Asher. He was from the son of the widow who had sustained, sustained Eliyahu 
I apologize before I said Elisha, and he was the dead who Eliyahu brought back to life. Rabbi Yochanan said he was from the tribe of Zavulun because when he is introduced in Malachim Bet, we're told he's from God Chefer in Zavulun's portion. Rabbi Levi says his mother was Asher, his father was Zavulun, and they were seafarers, and that's how he went to Tarshish. Rashi points out on, on Yonah that to flee from Tarshish to a sea named Tarshish, which is outside of Eretz Yisrael, saying that I will flee to the sea because Hashem doesn't rest outside of the of the, the land of the Jews. But Hashem says, don't worry, I have messengers to get you to fulfill your destiny, to fetch you from there. And when it says overturn, destroy, the question that I left you with a, a while ago was how could we use the word overturn? How could we use that word that it talks about overturned. It says destroyed. Don't use the word as destroyed. Use it as overturned because it means changed over. It turns It turns out that the people of Nineveh themselves were overturned. They changed from bad to good. They changed from doing evil to doing good. And Medrash Tanchoma talks about by Yonah that Hashem sent it the, the fish to, to and different things to give him the terrors of the sea. The fish swallowed him, he cried out to Hashem, and the hair in his head and the beard fell out because of the heat, and he went to Ninveh. Even though he didn't want to, Hashem led him on the way to fulfill and go to his destiny. And Malbim points out how Yonah's mission wasn't for the sake of Ninveh, but actually for Israel's sake. After Assyria was assigned to be with the rod of Hashem's wrath for Israel for their sins, Hashem wanted to bring them to repentance so they would be ready to fulfill Hashem's decree. Hashem wanted to show that Assyria had more merit than Israel because they listened to the words of the prophet repented while Israel did not and stiffened their neck when Yonah realized that from his mission harm would come in Israel that's when he began to think about not going that was what we talked about Hashem said to proclaim the idea Hashem was only sending him to rebuke them not to inform them of the decree on them and Yonah thought that by not going he was not guilty of suppressing his prophecy he wasn't being sent to prophecy at all but would be violating the positive command from Hashem and understanding that he was fleeing, that was part of his personality. I also want to point out, in the last few minutes here, there was someone else who also fleed from his destiny. It did not come out well. It was not a good thing. If we think about the story of Shoftim, what we read on Shavuos, Rus, in the first Pasuk, we learn about Eli Melech, who was a great man, a very powerful man, a man who had a lot of means, a lot of money. He fled from the Jewish people, he fled from Israel during a time of famine. The man in Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons, they went to reside in the country of Moab. His name was Melech. he had Naomi, his sons were Machlon and Kilion, and they were from Ephraim. They were there, but then Elimelech dies, and then she was left with her two sons. They married Orpah and Rus, and then they lived a couple of years, but they also died, and therefore she was left with just Rus and Orpah. She goes on the way to Moab, and she comes back, and the Megillus Rus talks about the, the commentators talk about that the approach of this severe punishment, why was there such a severe punishment that Elimelech, Malchim, and Kilian all died? It's from fleeing his responsibility to help his community in a time of great need. Elimelech saw Moab as a haven for those fleeing pressure to engage in chesed and chose to move to this bastion of anti-chesed in order to avoid pressure during a time of need. Fleeing the destiny doesn't bode well for those people in general in life do not flee from the destiny Hashem will lead you back to the destiny but ultimately people like that could be put in harm's way and, and be put to punishment if they flee from the destiny interestingly and we'll end off with this there's a very fascinating article from Torah.etzion.org.il talking about this idea and this concept of Yonah fleeing from this destiny Rav David Nativ talks about this translated by Karin Fesh 
Towards the climax of Yom Kippur, we're reading the story about Yonah. We see, some people say we read it because it's about mercy, even for non-Jewish people, about the, the theme of tshuva, of the city of Ninveh. But it seemed that it could be that the point of this is to show us about the fleeing of destiny. There's a conflict between Yonah and Hashem worthy of our attention immediately prior to Ne'ilah. The emphasis is not on just the ideas of prophets and the souls, but the basic issues which apply to all of us. The basic issue is the idea of Yonah is trying to escape from his destiny, his escape from Hashem, and his escape from himself. We may follow this sequence ourselves with 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 different aspects of our own life. You know, sometimes we're given a mission, we don't do it. We're supposed to approach the divine mission, not distance itself from us. And again, this is from Torah.etio, not only my own idea, but the approach is that we have to own up to our mission, own up to whatever our prophecy is in whatever way that Hashem leads it to us, whatever affinity we have. The 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 prophecy is shown to us that he's supposed to get up and do his call. Yonah flees from his call, flees from his destiny, flees from himself. Hashem sends him eastward. He flees westward. He goes out to Yafu. He goes onto the ship. The great wind, the furious storm, the terror of the sailors and their shouts and the actions show that he's descending. He's trying to flee from Hashem. Fleeing from his own life, fleeing from his own destiny. Hashem sends many messengers, many powers of nature that Hashem controls the wind, the sea, the fish, all to get Yonah to wake him up and to get him back to his destined path. Why are you sleeping? Get up and call to your Hashem. Why are we sleeping? Call out to Hashem on this Yom Kippur. And he's leaned into the sea and the great fish comes and and from the depths of the sea and from the climax of the escape comes a turning point finally in the fish. Yonah calls out, you've brought me up from my life from the abyss, Hashem. Hashem speaks to the fish. It spits Yonah out. He stands with his two feet on the ground. He goes back and he finally fulfills his destiny and gives out the prophecy and, he, and it works wonders and the, tar, the people in Nineveh, they overturn themselves and they actually go about and they do tshuva. Yonah fulfills his mission, goes away from the city. He can't stay there because of the kikayon. But really man's flight and death in general, oftentimes he flees from his destiny and his mission is defined by the needs of the generation and the nation as a whole. It's a common phenomenon. It's a common phenomenon. It involves a descent and leads to escaping from reality. People might do many things to escape from reality. Many aspects of many things, whether on the phone or whether through different aspects and different means that are not the most functional aspects and most functional ways but we need to come out from that and to follow the destiny to follow what we're supposed to do we need to make sure to find our destiny to follow our destiny what happens in life and when man flees from his destiny, his basic moral conceptual system is corrupted. He assumes a limited perception of reality, building himself a system of good and evil, which is different from what Hashem sensed him. But that's not what we're supposed to do. Why does Yonah flee in the first place? Why doesn't he want the people to repent? The answer isn't given. A person by nature is full of doubts, internal battles, competing considerations, and partial failures. Correct decisions along the way's chances of ultimate success always depend on a correct perception of the goal of the mission. Someone who flees from his mission and destiny will find himself at a dead end and punishment, God forbid, at every step of the way and will discover himself having mercy on a plant while ignoring the good of fellow humans and animals. So the main lesson, the main point that we could take from Yonah is to follow our destiny. Do not flee from your destiny. As the people of, of the ship ask Yonah, where are you coming from? What people are you? What land are you? When we come to Hashem in just one other day, can can we say to Hashem, I am not fleeing from my destiny. I'm asking you for another year. 
another aspect of life, more years of life, to fulfill what I can, to take my passions, to take my hobbies, to take my talents, to take my goals, to do a Kiddush Hashem, to be involved in Mitzvahs and Chesed, to be involved in Torah, to do what we can. We can learn from Yonah, we can learn from Nineveh. We can learn from a person, even from their fleeing, we can learn what not to do, not to flee from our destiny, not to flee from our mission, not to flee from our purpose, but to grab our mission, to grab our purpose, to grab our destiny. And I bless all of us, and myself as well, that we grab life by the horns, by the horns, we are involved in Karpadin, seizing the day, seizing our mission. We should be Zoha to know our mission, to fulfill our mission, to be written, sealed, and inscribed, and sealed for the Book of Life this year and many more years. And we should all be involved in having a wonderful, wonderful year, full of good things, full of health, full of happiness, full of prosperity, full of only good things that we are Written, sealed, inscribed for the Book of Life, we should all have a Gemara Chasim Tava, we should all have a Shana Tava Umatuka, and we should all have only good things with the coming of Mashiach, and the base of just speedily built in our days, and may that day finally, in fact, be today. This has been Tani Talks Radio, where we talk about the topic of the week. For the audience members to keep, join us next time, God willing, after the holidays, will we be back here on Tani Talks Radio.